Confusion spread, but hatred grew. Folks just went crazy. They didn't know the other day, that's all you had to do was put the word out that some black man insulted some white. No one bothered to check to see whether it was true or not. You just grab your gun and go start shooting somebody. Most of these events that were dubbed race riots would better be called assaults on the black community, or pogroms, or massacres, holocaust. These are horrific events perpetrated by white mobs designed to teach African Americans a lesson about their relative place in society. Confusion reigned and hatred ruled, the Tulsa riot of 1921. But what does it have to do with us today? Coming up on The Janice Adams Show. First, the news. Trying to make it real compared to what? We're back here on The Janice Adams Show. First, it was a barista calling the Philadelphia police on two African-American men sitting quietly in a Starbucks. It was a Yale grad student calling the police on a student who'd fallen asleep in a campus lounge. It was later revealed that she'd previously made a similar call on another black student. It was two Native American teens ejected from a college tour bus by police because a white woman, feeling uncomfortable, complained that they seemed too quiet. The teens had worked and saved up their money to do what hundreds of thousands of their prospective peers do every spring, visit college campuses. Police were also called when Airbnb guests looked questionable, suspicious. The two were black, the caller white. All this seemingly in the span of a few weeks Black people know it to have been going on for a lot longer than that. All this happening in a time when there is, on average, once a week, a police shooting of an unarmed black citizen. All this in a country with an unreconciled history of human rights violations against people of color, genocide, enslavement, segregation, and the requisite terror necessary to maintain that status quo since the arrival of Columbus led to the age of exploration and civilization for peoples of color the world over was forever shattered. Colonization, genocide, enslavement, 246 years of slavery in the U.S. alone, 90 years of virulent segregation that forged the civil rights movement, all this at a time when the federal government, despite the heightened awareness around hashtag MeToo and hashtag Black Lives Matters, is retracting its commitment to liberty and justice for all and judicial nominees are reluctant to express support for Brown v. Board of Ed, the 1954 Supreme Court school desegregation decision? Some will opine in reverence on democracy and the rule of the majority. All should ask the bigger question. Are the ideals of democracy truly safe for all when actions taken are devoid of a fundamental baseline respect for universal human rights? Can a democracy exist on sure footing for some when it assumes the mantle of a dictatorship for the many? If, as it is said, 
those who don't know their history are condemned to repeat it, some of the most horrific acts of American life have repeated themselves not just over weeks, but centuries. The history we're about to tell on today's show demonstrates what can and has happened too many times in the American past. This is the history of what happened in the red summer of 1919, as vets returned from World War II in 1946, and most terrifically, what happened in 1921 amidst the oil boom prosperity of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Our guest on the show today is author and attorney Hannibal Johnson. Here he is reading from his book about Greenwood, Black Wall Street, as it was known, an African-American community renowned for its entrepreneurs, culture, and prosperity in the era of so-called legal segregation. The Roots. Roots. The close ties that one has with some place or people as through birth, upbringing, or long and sympathetic association. At the dawn of the 20th century, Tulsa shone brightly. She radiated youth, vibrancy, affluence, and naivete. Initially called Tulasi, Tulsa began as a slumbering outpost on the Arkansas River settled by a band of Creek Indians. Beginning their epic journey in Alabama in 1834, the Creeks embarked on a two-year odyssey that would eventually lead them to a place they called Tulasi. Tulasi became Tulsi Town in the late 1800s. Tulsi Town turned to Tulsa, an incorporated municipality on January 18, 1898, and became a sprawling city, one of the largest in the Southwest by the 1920s. By then, local boosters finally dubbed Tulsa the Magic City. Oil explained the rapid transformation from dusty hamlet to gleaming, prosperous city. Walter White, an official with the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, described the caterpillar to butterfly metamorphosis of Tulsa in a 1921 article. He said, Tulsa is a thriving, bustling, enormously wealthy town of between 90,000 and 100,000. In 1910, it was the home of 18,182 souls, a dead and hopeless outlook ahead. Then oil was discovered. The town grew amazingly. On December 29, 1920, it had bank deposits totaling more than $65 million, almost $1,000 per capita when compared with the federal census figures of 1920, which gave Tulsa 72,075 people. The town lies in the center of the oil region, and many of the stories are told of making fabulous fortunes by men who were operating on a shoestring. Some of the stories rival those of the 49ers in California. The town has a number of modern office buildings and many beautiful homes, miles of clean, well-paved streets, and aggressive and progressive businessmen who well exemplify Tulsa's motto, the city with personality. Tulsa's motto the city with a personality. And you're quoting that from the article written by Walter White of the NAACP in 1921. But was that 1921, quote, before or after the Tulsa riots of 1921? So Tulsa was dubbed a number of different things. Tulsa was called the Magic City. It was also called the City with the Personality. Those were really references to um, the way that Tulsa 
blossomed and burgeoned because of the discovery of oil. A number of men came here with little to nothing and struck it rich with the discovery of of oil. So Tulsa was perceived as a place with a high work ethic and very industrious, um, ambitious, seeking kind of individuals. And that's why the city with personality and the magic city or monikers that were used to describe the town. So this was, it was dubbed that before the riots. Yes, of, yes. Okay. And, and both, both of those designations or monikers have to do with the rapid growth of Tulsa because of the discovery of oil and the industriousness and the work ethic of, of the people. It's, okay. not, it's not precisely clear what the city with the personality means, but it's presumed to be a positive designation, a compliment to the city. I'm sure. And my question, knowing what happened after, I looked at that phrase and said, the city with a personality, and I said, yes, but what about its character? On May 30th, 1921, Greenwood, home to a city of black strivers, stood tall. Two days later, it was a smoldering rubble, hundreds murdered in what is considered the worst race riot in the history of the United States, as white marauders, backed by local government, took to the streets in rage, leaving bodies, many decapitated, tarred and feathered, burned alive in their wake, and 10,000 people homeless. Emory University Associate Professor Carol Anderson picks up the story. Tulsa, the African-American community in Tulsa, was relatively prosperous, well-educated. I mean, they had done everything that they were supposed to do in terms of the American dream. You work hard, you save your money, you go to school, you buy property. I mean, this is, and this is what they had done under horrific conditions. I mean, when you look at the context of what black black, uh, America looked like at the time, the fact that they were able to do this, this is one of the things that we herald in terms of when we talk about the immigrant story, right? But instead, this created such seething resentment in Tulsa that you had black doctors, black attorneys, black businessmen. I mean, in fact, this area of Tulsa was known as Black Wall Street to give you some sense of how much it held in terms of value, in terms of esteem, in terms of of worth. And, but that resentment in Tulsa was so intense and that it was just waiting for a, a, a spark to just ignite it. That spark was a black messenger was delivering a message, you know, they had messengers back in the day, was delivering a message downtown. And he gets in the elevator and there's a white woman in the elevator. I believe she was the elevator operator. And from the first floor through the third floor, I mean, the elevator may have bumped or something, and he, 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 he hit her a little bit, but he didn't hit her. He just got a brush against her. She yelled, rape. Now, to understand what the charge of rape means when a white woman yells rape against a black man, in this period because part of understanding the violence that African-Americans faced was to deal with the issue of what was called the sanctity of white womanhood. And that sanctity of white womanhood said that all white women had to be protected from black beast, so-called black beast. And when she yelled rape, now the charge was absolutely improbable from the first floor through the, to the third floor. 
improbable, but it was the spark. They couldn't wait because he was the son of a prominent black businessman. So they hauled him, the police hauled him down to the station. Well, the black elite came down to the station going, you know, this is my son, this is my boy. Uh-uh, uh-uh, my son wouldn't do this. What's his bail? And I'm like, oh, uppity, how, how dare you come down here? How dare you? And because the African-American community sensed that the, the sense of anger and violence was rising, it wasn't one or two that came down. There were several of them that came down. And like, oh, so what, are you going to storm the, the jail? They said, no, but we're here for justice. We're here for justice. And then the lynch mob began to form in Tulsa. It was like, oh, these are some uppity Negroes who need to be put back in their place. And the violence began. Black Tulsa was, the lynch mob rode in, but they also came in airplanes, dropping bombs on Tulsa, black Tulsa. There are descriptions and depictions of African Americans being decapitated, being forced to kneel down and just having their heads severed. There are the pictures of the strafings, of the bombings, of the shootings. Nobody's quite sure what the death toll is. But when you look at the pictures, what you see is an area that had once been thriving. What we say is the American dream, absolutely leveled by the violence, by the lynch mobs, by the airplanes, by the bombs, leveled. Black Tulsa has never recovered. As the bombings are happening, as the violence is happening, as Tulsa is on fire, the governor of Oklahoma is like, whoa, maybe, mm, I probably should. The feds are looking up going, this is not our issue. I bet you, wow. Wow. Nothing we can do here. And that is so indicative of the imbalance that has happened in terms of justice, in terms of rights, in terms of the protection of basic civil and human rights for African Americans in the United States. The last surviving witnesses, nonagenarians, Dr. Olivia Hooker, Eldoris Macandici, Jimmy Lilly Franklin, Wes Young, and centenarian, Otis Granville Clark, tell the tale in the documentary, Before They Die. I said to my mother, how can it be hailing when the sun is shining? You know, I heard this, this noise hitting the house going blip, 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 blip. And she said, oh, here, I'll show you what's going on. And she took me to the front window and had me peer through the blinds. And she said, that's a machine gun up there. And... Your country, you see the American flag on it. Your country is shooting at you. It's not hailing. And this was a great surprise to me. You see, I was just six years old. Never occurred to me my country tis of thee would shoot at me. <laughs> they tried to kill all the colored folks they could see. They tried to kill everything they see. Don't make you live for the money of the rich or poor. They tried to kill you if you was colored. All down here, all down here, they, they tried to kill gun dealers. Well, they just was giving them out to white saying, "Go out there and kill your nigger," and that is literally what happened. 
the Black Wall Street was the most vibrant and successful black community in America. There were children and teenagers growing up educated and affluent. Everything was right there. So someone was asking me about going downtown in Tulsa. I said, I, I think I only went downtown one time before I was six years old because we had everything we needed in the neighborhood. We didn't have to go downtown. Because of the riot, the oldest building in Greenwood dates from 1922. Black Wall Street Memorial, Pioneers Gardens, 1996. 1996, it's Wall Street, that's Greenwood here. Greenwood here is our Wall Street. Yeah, we live like Wall Street, because a lot of folks was all city then, and a lot of folks come in from New York and Chicago, and we had a big time here on Greenwood. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's the oil country right we was all right for a while. <laughs> we was all right for a while. And old Nick coming along and tore it up. These kids watched movies at Bill Williams Dreamland Theater, the best black-owned theater in the Southwest. They shopped at D.L. Hooker's general stores and watched him bring the day's profits to the bank by horseback. They received house calls from Dr. A.C. Jackson, who the Mayo brothers called the finest black surgeon in America. As teenagers, they frequented the luxurious Stratford Hotel and held their senior proms in its ballroom. They watched their older brothers and sisters propose in Williams Confectionery. They reveled in vibrant Greenwood nightlife that attracted musicians like Cab Calloway, high-stakes gamblers, and all kinds of entrepreneurs. Tulsa was a city awash in oil money. It was largely in the white community, but it went to the black community as well, too. You had an explosion of businesses. You had an explosion of, of African-Americans running their own businesses, um, owning their own homes, building their own homes as well, too. But it's also happening during this great period of rising white racism. They burnt down over 30 square blocks in the Greenwood area. Terrible fire was for many years the best kept secret. Children in the white part of town grew up not even knowing that there had been a riot. Uh, the mayor of Tulsa, the first woman mayor of Tulsa, Susan Savage, told me that she was a grown woman, uh, although she had lived in Tulsa and had born there after the riot, that she was a grown woman before she even knew that there had been a riot. It wasn't until I got to OU in my junior year in college I heard anything about the Tulsa race riot, and I was, I was, I just couldn't believe it. A sort of culture of silence had settled down, and no one spoke of it, except in the black part of town, where they spoke of it in hushed tones and did not want to convey the impression that uh, they had been uh, defeated and almost destroyed by the action that was taken. I was afraid for a long time, and still, thanking God that I was still alive, that my family was alive, and that we were all together and trying, they were trying to start over. I say the reason our people didn't talk about it, 
we were afraid of it starting again. And that's what most of us felt. Why tell our children who were growing up and feel more animosity in their hearts? An incident in an elevator changed everything. He was a shoeshine boy. When he stepped on the elevator, the elevator was not quite aligned with the floor. So he tripped and he fell and he grabbed the little 17 or 18 year old elevator operator. And the people who were standing there getting off of the elevator are waiting to get on, said that he had attacked her. And there was no dynamite in America in the 1920s like an alleged attack by a black man on a white woman. So when that happened, he was absolutely terrified. There's no question about that. You couldn't make eye contact with a white woman. Confusion spread, but hatred ruled. Folks just went crazy. They didn't know another day. That's all you had to do was put the word out that some black man insulted some white. No one bothered to check to see whether it was true or not. You just grab your gun and go start shooting somebody. The story of Greenwood, Black Wall Street, and the Tulsa, Oklahoma race riot, May 31st to June 1st, 1921, and beyond. More on the Janice Adams Show with our guest, attorney and author of Black Wall Street, Hannibal Johnson, after the break. We're back here on The Janice Adams Show with our guest, Hannibal Johnson, author of two books on the story of Greenwood. For adults, Black Wall Street, and for younger readers, Up From the Ashes. My name is James, but everybody calls me Jimmy. I'm just a normal nine-year-old kid. I like toys, games, and having fun. I'm a lot like you. I lead a normal life. Well... I used to think I led a normal life. I'll let you decide. My story is about growing up in a place called Greenwood. Greenwood is not a city or a town. It's a neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where people work together, care about one another, and show each other respect. Best of all, Greenwood is a place where everybody knows my name. Hannibal Johnson reading from his book, Up From the Ashes. Hannibal, you say that Jimmy's story is the story of Greenwood. Is this Greenwood story your story? Well, the Greenwood story is our story. The story of what happened here in Tulsa, both in terms of the incredible entrepreneurship that blossomed here and the devastating 1921 Tulsa race riot and the rise like a phoenix from the ashes in its aftermath, these things are emblematic of events that happened all throughout the United States. We know that, for example, in the summer and fall of 1919, which James Weldon Johnson dubbed Red Summer, there were more than 25 major events called race riots throughout the United States in places like Chicago and Philadelphia and New York City, Elaine, Arkansas, Omaha, Nebraska, Washington, D.C., and on and on and on. What happened in Tulsa on May 31st through June 1st, 1921, happened a couple of years later. But it's, it's the same story, essentially, and that is uh, the oppression of black Americans, the failure to treat black Americans with the respect to which they 
are by right entitled, and the resilience of African Americans in the face of open, raw hostility, their ability to persevere and to carry on, even in spite of very long odds. Now, let me just say that a lot of people automatically assume that when you say riot, we're talking about African Americans rioting in their own communities, but that was not what happened in Tulsa in 1921, was it? That, that's right, and that's not what happened in most of the events in 1919. Uh, most of these events that were dubbed race riots would better be called assaults on the black community, or pogroms, or massacres, or burnings, or holocaust in, in, some, in some cases. These are horrific events perpetrated largely by white mobs designed to teach African Americans a lesson about their relative place in society. These are events of domestic terrorism, whereby white citizens felt emboldened enough to take legal matters into their own hands and punish whole black communities for an individual slight or perhaps in some cases a law violation um, with, the, with the message to the community being, know your place, remain in your place or else. And that place is very much a place defined by this extreme segregation, Jim Crow segregation of the time. Absolutely. So one of the other things that always strikes me when I hear Tulsa, because of the success of the African-American community, is that we think of this, oh, when people rise up, when whites rise up to essentially oppress blacks historically in the United States, or it is said, well, you know, the guy raped a white woman. But we know from the true documentation of history that many of these so-called assertions were ruses, and that indeed, in many cases, the more prosperous a black person or a black community, the more likely these riots were to happen. Right. So you are really hinting at the root causes of the 1921 Tulsa race riot, which are, in essence, jealousy on the part of white citizens over the success of, of the black community. Many black families owned their own homes, had fine uh, jewelry and clothing, had pianos, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, so jealousy, systemic racism that existed all over the United States, land lust. The Greenwood District is located um, adjacent to and across the tracks from downtown Tulsa. So the railroads wanted this land and some other commercial interests wanted this land. Uh, media propaganda played a, played a large role in fanning the flames that led to this explosion here in Tulsa. And also hate groups like the KKK were present here in Tulsa and actually swelled throughout the uh, course of the 1920s. So all those are the more institutional and systemic factors that led to this, this event that we call a, a riot. And I'm, I'm using sort of air quotes in my mind around the word race riot because that signals to me that it's important to think about who gives an event or a place or a people their name. 
Mm-hmm. Who's in control of the history? What about the power of the pen? That's really important. So during the 1920s, when the riot occurred, most black people were disempowered. Uh, and we, we didn't play a great role in, in shaping or recounting American history or even our own history. That was done largely by white interests who had interests in many cases that, are, that were, would, would be different from people in the black communities. So today, and that's why it's important to think about who actually has a seat at the table, who's involved in making these decisions about naming places and uh, placing monuments and all those sorts of things. To the extent that the involvement is more diverse, it's less likely that we're going to have some of these more controversial um, names and designations. As we speak to you today, you are an attorney as well as an author. I am thinking about the role of an attorney and we think law, but I'm also thinking about the legacy of law and law built on precedent. So in that, I see a a kind of a a confluence with your work as a historian, as an author historian. And I'm struck by the phrase that you used, who holds the power of the pen? How did you decide to take the power of the pen? How to cleave that as your own? Well, I've always enjoyed writing, um, and I've always been um, a fan of of what we call African-American history. And I, again, have to put an asterisk there because African-American history is American history. You can't talk about American history without including um, the African-American experience or it wouldn't be American history. So my father was a big history buff, and um, that probably is where I get that keen interest in the African-American experience. And I'm also a, a fan of of telling untold stories, you know, in, in ways that are accessible to people. And that's how it's Up From the Ashes' this children's book came into being. I'd done Black Wall Street, which is an adult book about the 1921 Tulsa race riot in the Greenwood District, the entrepreneurship and all that. But I thought kids can understand some basic concepts that are embedded in this rich history. They, kids understand things like fairness and community and respect and brotherhood and sisterhood and right and wrong. And this book is written on the third grade reading level. I can't tell you how many third graders and second graders and fourth graders I've spoken to who've read the book. They get it. They get the, the core messages. They may not use terms like oppression, but they understand what oppression is when they hear about it mm-hmm. in their language. And they they are very keen on what is fair and what is not fair. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's really what it boils down to. Right. Absolutely. And the other thing, particularly when I talk to kids in this community, um, knowing that they had perhaps direct blood ancestors who created really fabulous um, businesses and were enterprising and industrious and so forth, those are historical role models, and it behooves us to make sure that we make sure that uh, that our kids know about those historical role models. And when I say our kids, I mean all kids, not just black kids. White kids need to know that there were black black doctors like like uh, Dr. A.C. Jackson here in Tulsa 
who the Mayo brothers called the most able Negro surgeon in America. Mm-hmm. White people didn't know that. Mayo he was the brothers. most able Negro surgeon in America in, in the 19-teens and 1920s when getting a medical school education was darn near impossible for, for a black person, right? And, and to, to be in a segregated community and have both black patients and white patients, that is a true testament to his proficiency in his craft. And I didn't mean to interrupt you, but when you say Mayo Brothers, you mean Mayo as in Mayo Clinic. Absolutely. So one of the top hospitals to this day right? in the country. You right. know, you're mentioning this and you're mentioning the, the exchange that you have with young people. In that vein, so much, I mean, what happened in, in um, Tulsa? the race riot of 1921 was in today's parlance it was a terrorist attack on right. on a community i agree and um and as we talk to young people today we are experiencing as an african american community to be blunt we are experiencing other forms of terror the our young people who have to who are not unaware of what happened to Trayvon Martin, they are not unaware of ha- what happened to Michael Brown and who did it. And so, I'm looking at this book and I'm thinking of the story, and most importantly, I'm thinking of the up from the ashes part of the story and saying. Well, then, Hannibal, from your frame, how do you talk to young people today about some of these issues that you're actually writing about in this book? I think the book is really a a great platform to spur discussion about current events, as you suggest. And up up from the ashes, the, the very title suggests resiliency and and. Resiliency in the context of this 1921 Tulsa race riot, where, again, the odds were stacked greatly against the African-American community here, yet the community rebuilt and came back bigger and better than ever. And if they could do that, given the, the extensive barriers that they faced, both overt and covert, then think about what we can do today if we put our minds to it. It's, the point is not that, that we don't still face racism in various forms. But the point is, anything can be surmounted. So I think we work on dual tracks. We work on eliminating racism, which is an ongoing process, uh, and I would argue a never-ending process. But, But we also work on ourselves such that even given racism, we know that we can be successful. In the... Arthur quotes of Black Wall Street, your comparable book for adults. I'm struck by the quote from Wilma Mankiller, and it says, the story of the development of the Greenwood community in the midst of extreme racism reminds us that you can take away almost everything from a people, but you can't take away their spirit. I love that quote. It 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 it, it is um it's profound, and again, it's that notion that my folks used to use a term called stick to itiveness 
don't know if you've heard that term <laughs> Absolutely. Before. But just being able to persevere through horrendous things. And again, my frame is that we work on dual tracks always, that there are these systemic evils that we have to work on uh, reducing and, to the extent possible, eliminating. But at the same time, we have to find strategies to allow us to circumvent those obstacles and achieve the success that we know that we are entitled to. It's that working on dual track and persevering and learning from the past. I sometimes paraphrase Dr. Maya Angelou, who said, our history, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived. But Mm. if faced with courage, it need not be lived again. More on the Janice Adams Show with our guest, author of Black Wall Street, Hannibal Johnson, after the break. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with our guest, Hannibal Johnson. He's the author of two books on the story of Greenwood and the Tulsa riots of 1921. For adults, Black Wall Street, and for younger readers, Up From the Ashes. I sometimes paraphrase Dr. Maya Angelou, who said, Our history, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived. But if faced with courage, it need not be lived again. Yes. Yes. You know, when I hear you say that and the passion in your voice, that aspect of the history that need not be lived again, however, there are elements of that history that we would like to live again, that we would like to rise up from the ashes as a community, especially in in these current times with what's going on, that we would like to, unfortunately, it, it would be nice if there were no ashes to rise from, but right now we are in in the point of needing to rise up from the ashes, as you've titled your book. When did you first, as a young person, hear about Black Wall Street? And when did you first, as a young person, person hear about the Tulsa riot of 1921? That's interesting because I grew up in Fort Smith, Arkansas, which is a town that's on the Arkansas-Oklahoma border about 100 miles from Tulsa. I was totally unfamiliar with Black Wall Street or the 1921 Tulsa race riot as as a child growing up in Fort Smith. In fact, was not even familiar with that history until I moved to Tulsa after graduating from law school. I was asked to write a guest editorial column for one of the black newspapers, the Oklahoma Eagle, and asked to focus on the Greenwood District in a a multi-part series. I did that. I became increasingly interested, learned a little bit, and that's how Black Wall Street emerged, and that's how then I ended up writing the children's book and and all that. And that is a common refrain. Uh, Many people here in Tulsa, black and white, who grew up here, didn't really know this history, and they didn't know the history because in in a very systematic way, the history was denied to them because it wasn't part of the regular curriculum. Some people even refer to it as, as a conspiracy of silence around these events. Yes, because uh, with a lot of horrific events, you, you hear um, European Holocaust survivors and you hear lynching survivors and the families right. that have gone through that. And the dialogue is very similar that the victims are often the ones who are most afraid to talk about what really happened. Yeah, I think there are a lot of psychological dynamics that we need to keep in mind when traumatic events happen. 
post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. There's fear on the part of the victims, on the part of the, of the perpetrators or people somehow connected to the perpetrators, um, shame, guilt, blame. So all those complicated psychological dynamics led us to a place where this history, the history of, the, of one of the most prominent black entrepreneurial communities in the United States, and the worst of the so-called race rights in American history, these things were not included in the historical curriculum of the state, not mandated as part of the educational process, which is tragic, because I often run into people, particularly younger people, who, black and white, by the way, who feel cheated because they weren't taught this history as a child growing up in their Oklahoma history class or in their American history class. You know, that was why I saw the trauma that James refers to as being so on point. Um, Right. I really was happy that you said that it wasn't just black children who felt robbed, but white children, too. Right. Because they are being robbed if they don't know the truth about their society, and we don't know the truth about our society because it is all one society. We are damaging people with that yeah, lack and, of knowledge. And that's part of the reason that you see a, a, a lot of white folks who, who can so quickly condemn all Muslims as terrorists, right? They don't understand their own history. The Klan was a terrorist organization. Is a terrorist who, who, organization. Is, it, it still exists, but not to, not with the power that it once had, but, it, but it's, its foundational documents, its constitution, is based on Christian principles, explicitly. I mean, they, they definitely consider themselves a Christian organization, and many of the Klan's members during its heyday were prominent, upstanding white businessmen who considered themselves Christians and were elders and deacons and whatever in the church. They used to give honorary membership and induction to U.S. presidents. So when we, that is who we're talking about when we talk about the Klan, and that is why African Americans don't do a wink, wink, nod, nod on somebody like a David Duke. Right. Is it possible for a young person to be raised away from racism in this country? I would... uh... I mean, I think it's certainly arguable, but I I would say no. I think racism is embedded into the fabric of of the country, and it affects us in ways great and small. Uh, Many of the ways are are subtle and may not even manifest to some kids until until later, until teenage years or or, or even later, depending on how and, and where they grow up. But at some point, race is going to be relevant. Even though race is merely a social construct, it plays out in real ways. That, that affect people's potential and their fortunes. Going forward in the little time that we have left, if there are three things that you would tell young people based on your book, what would be those three kind of life lessons that you'd like them to walk away with? Just off the cuff, I would say set goals, aim high, and don't quit. Before we close, is there anything that you would like to add that I may not have asked you? 
the last page is a good synopsis of Oh, of I what love the, the last page. Is. Yes. Would you like to read it? This book is based on a true story. Greenwood is a traditional African-American community in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Greenwood is also the name of the best-known street in the community. Greenwood's reputation throughout the nation as Black Wall Street came about because of the successful black-owned and black-operated businesses there. The Tulsa race riot of 1921 destroyed all that, but the people of Greenwood refused to give up. The community was rebuilt and came back bigger and better than ever. It peaked in the 1940s. At one time, there were 242 businesses in Greenwood. With the end of segregation and changing economic and social conditions, Greenwood began to decline in the late 1960s and throughout the 1970s. Greenwood now stands ready for another rebirth. The Greenwood Cultural Center is its centerpiece. In the coming years, Greenwood is expected to become a leading arts and entertainment center for the Tulsa community. And we can't wait to do a show on it when it does. <laughs> Since we recorded this show, the 1921 Tulsa Race Riot Commission has announced the publication of a statewide curriculum on the history, lest we forget. The significance of what we're doing today in Black History Month, with all the racial and political strife that's going on in America today, on this Black History Month, I am excited to join with my colleague across the aisle, U.S. Senator Lankford, a Republican, myself, Senator Kevin Matthews, a Democrat, coming together to talk about this history and make all Oklahomans aware of this by today launching a curriculum that can be accessed through www.tulsa2021.org. The curriculum is incredibly significant because interestingly enough it's been a part of the requirement for Oklahoma education to talk about the Tulsa race riot but there's been no curriculum to go with it. It's something we noticed about a year and a half ago. So we work with the Oklahoma History Center with great authors and writers uh, to be able to pull together not only uh, visual pieces, photographs, uh, videos, uh, clips, some of it's I'm on the floor speaking on the Senate on this issue, some of it's other writers and teachers talking about it, but to be able to pull together a curriculum that can either be used for a week of teaching on the Tulsa race riot or a single day where teachers can piece it together. So those that part of the curriculum is all available. It's online. It's free to any teacher so that any teacher from anywhere across the country, but obviously we'd encourage it to be used strongly in Oklahoma, that they would spend at least a day uh, talking about the Tulsa, Tulsa race riot. What happened then? What, what can we learn from it now? is created to get the conversation started, pulling all of the resources that we have throughout the state, not just the Oklahoma Historical Society, but the Tulsa Historical Society, the Greenwood District, and it touches on curriculum, I'm sorry, standards from third grade, sixth grade, ninth grade on up, not just history, but geography, uh, psychology, sociology. So it's, it encompasses several standards over many different grades. Well, keeping the history alive is very important. Again, if we don't learn from our history, it can be a very dangerous thing. And it's also interesting for, it is almost 100 years old, and a lot of those survivors, we are fortunate enough to have oral histories available for students to hear so they can hear firsthand accounts of what it was like for someone during this time. And that stands out, to, it makes it real to them, and it stands out to them, and it makes them think, oh, wait a minute, 
We started out here at this horrible, horrible event, and now this is where we're going, what we've learned from it, how we've learned to reconcile, and how we can grow. Oklahoma Senator James Lankford and State Senator Kevin Matthews unveiling the new 1921 Tulsa Race Riot Education Curriculum. Today on The Janice Adams Show, our guest has been Hannibal Johnson, author of Black Wall Street. To learn more about the 1921 Tulsa race riot, the surviving witnesses, and all the participants and producers who contributed to the show, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. Playing now, Nina Simone, in tribute to the survivors and to the legacy of Black Wall Street. From the studios of WJFF post-production, Jason Dole. The Janice Adams Show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved.